Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. It's, it's really a national treasure. It really is. And you mentioned, Aaron, having uh, the memories as a kid and being able to share that with your own. Uh, that, that's one of the beautiful things about being God-fearing Americans that we got to love. Welcome to the National Wildlife Federation Outdoors Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Youngdike. And starting today, actually, we're bringing on a co-host as well. My colleague from the National Wildlife Federation, Aaron Kindle. He is our Director of Sporting Advocacy. And starting with this episode, he's going to be a regular co-host on the podcast as well. Aaron's a Western guy, uh, so he brings a little bit of that perspective to add into the, the Great Lakes one that, that I've brought. But before I prattle on any longer, I'm going to let Aaron talk about himself because he's going to have to do that a lot more talking now, now that he's going to be a co-host of this podcast. Aaron, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Drew. Thanks for uh, the little intro there and having me on. I'm excited about what we're going to do here together. Excited about bringing a Western perspective, uh, a Wyoming native myself, living in Salida, Colorado now, and uh, hopefully I can bring in people and and make connections like our guest today for uh, the perspective that we're going to talk about. That's great, and that's a a good way to transition to our guest today, which is Joshua Corsi. Josh is the uh, are you the executive director? I am, yeah. Joey Faye and I actually founded the Muley Fanatic Foundation together in 2012. So, yeah, we, to put a title on it, um, yeah, that's where we're at. So you're the founder, you're the guy. Uh, <laughs> but it's for the Muley Fanatic Foundation, and uh, we're really excited to have Josh on. Uh, what we're going to cover today is, is really important, uh, both the, how mule deer are doing out west, as well as the impact of the the energy dominance agenda uh, on muleys and and what they need to survive and thrive out west as well. Um, But first of all, uh, 
Josh, could you tell me a little bit about yourself and, and the Muley Fanatic Foundation? Um, you said that you founded it. How, how did that come about? Was it through your passion in hunting? Yeah, yeah, very, very. That's a, that's it on the on the head right there, Drew. Um, hey, Joey and I, as I mentioned, we founded the organization. But uh, prior to founding the Muley Fanatic Foundation, we had chaired an effort uh, with a different conservation group for mule deer for five years. Uh, essentially, what that entailed was hosting one annual fundraising banquet a year. Of course, the economy was much different, uh, you know, from 2007 to 2011. And, we generated a lot of revenue for that organization and really at the end of the day could not see the return of those dollars going to the ground and just thought that uh, there was a different niche for us to create a different model and um, you know essentially that that was the premise for founding the, the Mealy Fanatic Foundation. Uh, we developed a model that's uh, in, by simplicity and design. Uh, it's called the 70-30 model. Each of our chapters hosts a, an annual fundraising banquet each year. They retain 70% of those dollars raised in a local bank account in their community. And then through an all volunteer project allocation committee, they allocate those dollars to their backyard. And again, that was the basis for finding and founding the organization was we felt like the folks that were supporting these efforts needed to be able to see the fruit of their own labor and where the places that they recreate. It's not that in Southwest Wyoming, we didn't care about deer in Gunnison, Colorado or Boise, Idaho or anywhere else out west where mule deer roam, but uh, we felt like the folks that were pledging their dollars, which, you know, when you really break that down is, is a trade for their time. I mean, they go to work to earn those dollars and then they put those dollars to passions and things that are very near and dear to their heart. We just thought at the end of the day, those folks, the right thing to do was to, to be able to make an impact to where they live. And, uh, now that's not always the case in, in all places. I mean, we have a Denver chapter and you're not putting dollars to help mule deer in the city limits of Denver, but uh, it's an area where there's people that live there, support the efforts of conservation, but they've contributed a lot of money to projects in Western Colorado, particularly the Highway 9 project over there with an overpass. And so all of our chapters have really been under that model is looking first and foremost in their backyard if they can make a difference. And then uh, if it's not an applicable situation, looking beyond that, especially in the in the realm of science and research, we've been a big proponent of that. Uh, in 2015, uh, we launched a $1.3 million PhD project with the University of Wyoming called DEER. It's an acronym that stands for DEER Elk Ecology Research. Very hands-on project, a lot of helicopter captures and collaring with satellite collars. Of both deer and elk and really trying to flesh out the competition on the landscape between the two species in a laboratory that had very little oil and gas development but had elk populations that were as robust as can be up 40 percent over the last five years and mule deer populations that were down 40 percent over the last decade being a limited quota area and really the, the trophy population the, the male population within both Birds uh, was really the target by sportsmen, yet our mule deer are suffering. I mean, they've taken it on the chin. Uh, mule deer populations across the West as a whole are down 40% over the last decade, and, and there's a lot going on there. 
that's probably more than you asked for, Drew, but that's it. Of it. <laughs> well, you know, it, it was going to be what I asked for next anyway. So you, you saved me having to ask how they're doing. Um, you said that, that they're down 40% and, and there's a few different factors. What what are some of those factors that, that have contributed to that? And I guess it's, it's alarming for me to hear because um, just from the East, what my knowledge of it is that Mule deer were such a draw that back in the 70s, he got my grandpa to move out there to Lusk, Wyoming, because uh, he liked to hunt antelope and mule deer. Um, and I imagine since that time, uh, things have changed for him. Um, what, what's driving that change in that, down, that downward population trend? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, there's no silver bullet. There's no one thing that's doing it. It's a combination of multiple things. But, uh, you know, deer are just such a sensitive species compared to other big game mugulants like elk. Rheumatology of their digestive system is so much different. Uh, really, truly, when you look at the comparisons between elk and deer, one is truly a grazer and one is a browser. I mean, and, and deer are very picky. We found this out with the, the research project that we're doing that I had mentioned before. Uh, in the summer, the three grad students on this project were collecting fecal samples in, in throughout this landscape, looking at what their dietary needs were. And mule deer, we were able to determine through DNA and those samples back to the lab, ate about 23 different forbs and forage on the landscape where elk were over 200. So one, one is truly a very much more refined picky eater. So diet is certainly playing into that. And, and you look at habitat and drought, uh, those things are, are certainly there. And then you add, you know, the layers of development and fragmentation within that habitat. And then you start looking at carrying capacity of the landscape. All of those factors are certainly having its part as being a culprit in the decline numbers. But then beyond that, you look at the predation. Uh, you look, I mean, we in Southwest Wyoming have a very high number of mountain lion numbers. Uh, you know, mountain lions is a, it's not classified as a predator in Wyoming. It's a trophy game animal, but it's the one critter that Wyoming truly, its wildlife managers are, are really unchecked in knowing what those numbers are. And, so mountain lions are certainly part of that equation. And then you've got coyotes and wolves and grizzlies, everything else that everybody points to as, as the apex predator. But then when you look beyond that, we found uh, ravens and even eagles are having an impact, uh, particularly on fawn crop and the recruitment of that next year's fawns turning into to one-year-olds and then going forward, providing sustainability to that herd. Beyond that, then the list just keeps going. Chronic wasting disease in eastern Wyoming is skyrocketing and growing with great prevalence. Eventually, that's going to move to every place within the state. We've seen that as a prion. It lives within the environment. It's not something that, you know, has an antidote for. It's not a bacteria or a virus. You look at adenovirus that was just found on the scene in 2016 in the Wyoming range. Prior to that, it had only been documented in Northern California and in very Western parts of Idaho. It made the jump. It was found in the Wyoming range. Uh, we found a, a very significant amount of the fawn crop that we had satellite collars on that 45 days, body condition looking good, healthy, tipped over dead. Go in there, find them, recover the carcass and find that those deer on the outside looked fine. But what we found was that they were drowning in their own fluid and Sure enough, it was a new disease that wasn't on the scene, that being adenovirus. So, I mean, there's multiple factors that are impacting, uh, not only the competition with other big game ungulates, but you know, Western Wyoming in particular has a fairly large number of feral horses or 
wild horses. Um, you know, every, all of them are competing for the same resource. And again, deer just taking on the chin. They seem to be the weak link on the landscape and, and tend to be subpar to some of those prime areas where they need for nutrition and some of their objectives that they need for survivability. So um, you look at, you know, and, and that's kind of essentially how our chapters went with our project allocation committees. That's how we try to guide them and how they fund their projects and where they want to put the dollars on the ground is look at areas where they can make an impact in their local area. Of course, you know, mule deer are just one part of our mission statement. You know, the furthering the sport of hunting is a key pillar within that mission statement. And then sound science. Uh, we've been a big proponent, as I mentioned, of science from the beginning, trying to put another tool in the toolbox for our wildlife managers. Um, you know, we lose a lot of deer for in Wyoming, particularly to highway mortalities. So a couple of years ago, we introduced a bill with the local legislature to try to get it through the budget session, which was a tough, tall order for us. So Wyoming had had 47 other license plate bills go before the legislature and they kicked all but one to the curb. And uh, this one, it, it really gained some momentum when we brought some other partners on to create a, a bill that would provide a new vanity plate where the dollars and those proceeds would go into a specific account to help build overpasses and underpasses and modify existing fence to wildlife friendly fencing. So I think it's just, it's kind of that Dave Letterman top 10 list of here's the problem. Where do you have a remedy or a solution to try to help combat that and try to move the needle forward? Did you work with the uh, Wyoming Wildlife Federation on that license plate bill? Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we actually, uh, they had at that time a fairly new staff member uh, Jesse Johnson had come on board and she was in Cheyenne that year. So yeah, we roped them into the effort to try to get them to help jump on and they're a good partner for us. They've been, they've actually, I work very closely with Joy Bannon particularly, but uh, the other state director, uh, Dwayne, you know, a lot of issues in Wyoming. Wyoming is, a, as Aaron could attest, is, you know, it's really one small town with a lot of long roads in between. That's great. And and for folks that don't know if this is one of the first uh, NWF Outdoors podcasts that you're listening to, the National Wildlife Federation is composed of 52 state and territorial affiliates. And those are independent organizations that are, you know, have their own board of directors, set their own course, but then they get together every year at our annual meeting. This year it will be virtual, virtual, a virtual meeting, but they set our national policy as a national organization. So it's a, definitely a bottom up. And the Wyoming Wildlife Federation is an independent organization, but there are National Wildlife Wildlife Federation affiliate in Wyoming that brings Wyoming perspective to our national policy setting uh, process too. So just wanted to throw that in there for folks that aren't aware of how the National Wildlife Federation operates. Uh, I think, what is it, Aaron, out of those 52 uh, independent affiliate organizations, um, a little bit over half, I think 20, 28, um, are primarily hook and bullet kind of hunting and fishing organizations like that. Yep. Yeah, I can tell you, Drew, uh, the Wyoming Wildlife Federation, as far as advocacy work and their connection within uh, the, the legislative process and with decision makers in Wyoming to the governor's office, I mean, that's the go-to group in the Cowboy State. They, uh, they're very well connected, very well respected. They've been around a very long time and they've earned their reputation. It's solid. It's, it's great to hear. Aaron? Yeah, Josh, one of the things that 
first, I just loved hearing hearing your your quick rundown. You've obviously got a pretty polished elevator speech at this point. You're covering a lot of issues, and you know we commend the work you're doing. The the plight of the mule deer is something not a lot of people know about. So I appreciate the work you're doing to get it out there. But will you tell us a little bit about your personal background too? You know where you grew up. How'd you get into How'd you get into conservation and and just kind of the path that it that took to get you here. Yeah, yeah. So I, I am a Wyoming native, uh, born and raised here. I left uh, right out of high school. I knew early on I wanted to be a soldier, and so I October of my senior year of high school enlisted in the U.S. Army in their delayed entry program. So as soon as graduation rolled around, I was able to to ship off, and uh, I did that. I uh, was a photojournalist in the army four years, got out of the service. I actually moved to Colorado. I lived in a small town called Lake City, um, just south of Gunnison. Great spot. Yeah, um, great spot. Beautiful community. Went to, uh, went to the police academy there in uh, Delta Montrose area. Um, went back to Lake City with the Hinsdale County Sheriff's Department. Uh, and, you know, as you get older, you you have kids and you have a the base of my family is still in Wyoming, and it becomes a little more important to have that interaction. Plus, uh, the community I was living in was as beautiful as it was. It was tough to make a living in, a uh, high cost of living with a low-paying job. Uh, moved back to Wyoming, be a little closer to family, and uh, but have always had a passion for the outdoors. Always loved uh, not just the, the hunting aspect, but just the recreational aspect, avid Boy Scout you know, involved with Boy Scouts all the way up until the day I left to go to the Army. i just seen a need. I think the need was probably uh, brought to my attention more so having my own children and knowing that it uh, it came at a price and it took people that were willing to, to get their hands dirty and give back to make that continue. Uh, I had seen the changes that I had been able to observe from the time I was a youth to as a young adult raising my own family thought, boy, it's pretty selfish and stingy to think that uh, this is something that's expected. Uh, this comes because of a lot of work. A lot of that work is policy work, but a lot of that work also involves being able to try to make a difference and, and collaborate, really. I think that's the flavor of the 21st century is having that collaboration with partners, knowing that it's going to take a collective effort to really make a difference. And as I mentioned, Joey and I, out to another organization and said, hey, we're, we're concerned about mule deer. We want to do something for mule deer. And that, that conversation started real quick into, well, why don't you guys establish a chapter for the Mule Deer Foundation? And so we did that. <coughs> Excuse me. And as I mentioned, uh, no, no fault to the MDF, just a different model. We've seen a different way that we could go about doing things. We were a little more focused on how we could make a difference directly to our own backyard. And and then it's grown from there. Uh, this year, uh, prior to the COVID-19 uh, social distancing mandates, uh, we were pretty fortunate. We, we were able to pull off a few of our chapter events. And uh, for the first time uh, this year, we had a, our first chapter, the Blue Ridge chapter out of Winchester, Virginia, held their event in and that was a little humbling for us because, as you know, they don't have mule deer in Virginia. Uh, but, but what have passionate people that live back east that come out west and recognize also the same responsibility or accountability to stewardship that hey, we want to do our part. We enjoy coming out west and buying a non-resident tag is not enough. There's more effort that needs to be done. And 
So that was pretty interesting to be able to, to see that chapter get off the ground. I'm glad we were able to get that one at least underway before the, the social distancing mandates, but uh, uh, that's kind of really where it's at and kind of how it got started and how I got involved. That's excellent. Can you talk, let, let's circle back over to the Southwest Wyoming area, Josh. Um, you know, between Northwest Colorado and Southwest Wyoming, I think we've all heard the mule deer factory nomenclature. It's, it's some of the largest, if not the largest herds of mule deer in all of North America. And you're intimately familiar with this South, Southwest Wyoming area that the Rock Springs, you know, resource management plan that we highlight in the report is, uh, is covering. Talk about a little bit of your history there. There's a, there's a little mountain coalitions out there. I know you, you guys have been engaged in that. Um, I think you live in Rock Springs as well, don't you, Josh? Talk a little bit about, you know, uh, your history is there. I, I live in Green River. Oh, Green River. Ten, ten yeah, I live. Oh, that'll work. Yeah, there's a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> there he is. Uh, there I have a girlfriend that lived in Green uh, yeah. River, so I know. You, yeah, that's right. Yeah, big difference. If you live in Rock Springs, you can easily say, yeah, same thing. But if you live in Green River, you're quick to make the differentiation. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, the Little Mountain area is, uh, you know, on a map, if, if you look at Wyoming as God's perfect square, it's, uh, you know, about uh, 100 miles to the east of the, the far west border. Uh, that southwest part of the state uh, is a, a tremendous landscape. It's managed uh, with a, a tremendous amount of public land from the Rock Springs BLM field office. 3.6 million acres in, within this field office, a very large field office, uh, huge diverse uh, differences in its landscape. Uh, but this particular area that has been uh, something that we've been very involved in, forming a coalition to, to really work to try to maintain this pristine landscape for generations to come that's really been untapped and undeveloped. Uh, also, the same landscape that the Deer Project that I mentioned before that we partnered with the University of Wyoming on, it's the same landscape that, the, that is acting as the laboratory for that particular study. We started prior to us even founding the Muley Fanatic Foundation uh, when we caught wind that this RMP process was going to start. This was in 2008, and it kind of really just emphasizes how long these processes take place, uh, a lot of the bureaucracy within these. Uh, not only that, uh, you look at just the change in administrations that we've seen since that time. Uh, this, this process really has become such a, an important process for us to try to educate and make others aware of, uh, and not just local folks. So again, this is public land. When you look at how much public land, 92% of the public land that we have in this country is it really predominantly in 12 Western states? And this public land in our backyard, it belongs to all Americans, whether you live in Columbia, South Carolina, or Pennsylvania, or Florida. I mean, we're, we're just a steward of that land as Wyoming residents because it's in our backyard, but it belongs to everyone. And I think once that recognition is made clear, then it's really an educational process to how important it is to be engaged in the processes that are about to unveil that will eventually become the playbook for how that land is managed for potentially as this one is up to 23 years since the last RMP was put out, 1997. 
if you think about that, it's pretty alarming to think that 27 years or 23 years from now, what would that look like in the year 2043 before we change this process again? I mean, my, my oldest daughter is 24 and I think she'll be as, as old as I am right now before this next opportunity might be in play for her to have a say in how that landscape is for the next generation. And so I, you know, that, that really just kind of hit home for us that we've seen some things that have happened on our landscape in Western Wyoming, particularly at the beginning of the 21st century up until about 2008 with a major push for development. And we've seen how those scars have permanently altered not only the landscape, but also the inhabitants within that landscape, particularly mule deer, of course, as that's a big passion of ours. But uh, I think knowing and recognizing that we all have a, a voice at the table and, and that there shouldn't be one dominant voice that's prioritizing how everything is moving forward, but there, there's other values to our landscape as public land besides energy development. You know, that being said, I'll be the first to tell you, our organization is not anti-oil and gas. We, we recognize, have many friends and family within those industries, but what we have recognized that there is a, there is a need for balance and responsible development. And that does mean that we need to be able to showcase and prioritize other aspects of the land value besides energy dominance and development of our landscapes. At the end of the day, God's not making any more dirt and we better take care of some of those places we have now if we want to be able to ensure that those special places that we've made special memories with our kids or we made them as kids ourselves want to be there for those that are coming that aren't even here yet. Absolutely. And, and Josh, you mentioned the, the RMP process um, for, for folks who are like me from, from the Midwest or, or the East, um, that's a regional management plan for, for the Bureau of Land Management. Um, this might be a good opportunity, maybe Aaron, to, to talk about the report that the National Wildlife Federation just put out about some of these RMPs and what's going on with that process in multiple states out west. Um, what's, what's going on with that process uh, right now and what's been happening recently? Sure, and Josh, jump in as, as you see fit. Um, yeah, these are, these are called resource management plans and they're essentially just the land use plan for certain sections um, that the BLM manages. It'd be similar if you're an Easterner to a forest plan. You know, they determine the broad categories by which the land's gonna be managed. You know, this particular area over here will be prioritized for trails and recreation. This, this particular over here will be uh, prioritized for habitat what what not and like josh mentioned they often they're supposed to be updated around every 20 years but they often drift longer than that there's many that are past 30 years um, so it's really important that we get the broad categories of management correct and what we're seeing uh particularly lately and what we wanted to do with this report is highlight that often in, in these really valuable hunting landscapes, these landscapes that are they're full of deer and elk and pronghorn, we're seeing this prioritization of energy development over the other values. And we really think that has broad implications uh, when you're talking about a 20 or 30 year plan. And if it's developed out at the scale that a lot of these are prescribing, we may have a a real tough time holding on to those hunting traditions. And particularly if you think about things like Josh talked about with 
uh, the, the plight of the mule deer and, and the declining numbers, if you add a bunch more cuts, when we're already seeing a death by a thousand cuts, we could be looking at some real trouble for our hunting future. And so we wanted to take the opportunity to highlight a few different areas and, uh, and, and talk about what they're looking like. So that's what we did. There's three. There's the Rock Springs Resource Management Plan, the Lewistown Resource Management Plan in Montana, and then the uh, Uncompagre Resource Management Plan in Colorado. And all of them really prescribe a pretty heavy level of development. And the, the Rock Springs Resource Management Plan isn't complete yet. And Josh could probably talk at length about where that's headed, and this might be a good time to, to ask you to do that, Josh. But the other two are complete, and they prescribe over 90% uh, of the areas open to energy development. And uh, that just doesn't look like balance. As we talked about earlier, uh, you know, 50 or, or you know, at least, a, at least a delineation of what's valuable and what's not and, and, and why you would develop one area over the other seems the most prudent path forward. And uh, when we, when we hear 90%, that just seems like way too big of a, a net to cast over that landscape and say, all of that is suitable. Um, and so that's part of what we wanted to do with this report. And uh, I'll, I'll let Josh jump in a little bit about where the rock Springs management uh, resource management plan is. Cause I think that one's unique for a few different reasons. Yeah, I think, Aaron, uh, the one thing that makes that one such a unique RMP is that it covers such a huge and vast amount of landscape. I mean, I don't, I can't recall what the Lewistown or the Uncompadre, but they, aren't they five, six, hundred thousand acres? Yeah, they're not nearly as much. And your landscape there is uh, 3.5 million acres is more than, I think, three or four states in our right. country. So, Yeah, th that Rock Springs Field Office RMP ha has... Uh, you know, just significant value for the decisions that will come when this is all done. Uh, we're anticipating a draft release to come out at the end of May, uh, despite uh, some efforts that have been put forth to ask for that delay due to the, the COVID-19 social distancing mandates and, and knowing that the processes for the public to be able to be engaged and be involved to attend public meetings are going to be limited. Uh, right now, they're still full steam ahead moving forward with those. But as I alluded to earlier, in 2008, we began this process to organize a coalition of concerned citizens and sportsmen and sportswomen um, because we knew how important this was going to be. Uh, of course, it was very fresh in our minds at that time, seeing the, the drastic changes of, due to development on the landscape. In those first eight years of the 21st century, it was extreme. It was 100 miles an hour. And a lot of things that have advanced since then. Uh, credit to the industry, directional drilling, uh, some new rules and protocols put in place to limit a certain amount of well pads per acres. I mean, there has been some changes, uh, but it doesn't, uh, there is no retribution for what has been done. But it does really create the emphasis for making sure that it's being done right moving forward. That being said, uh, we thought it was important that if we're going to try to have some sort of voice uh, to make sure that it does not come across that this is anti-oil and gas, knowing how important our own energy development is, 
not only its economic impact to those that have their jobs here, that live here, work here, play here, but also from a national security standpoint, knowing that uh, there is a need for us as a nation to, to be able to be self-sufficient. And, and so what we did first and foremost, once we organized in 2008, was we reached out to all the leaseholders within this area to talk to them about their future plans, about what they had and, and where they were moving forward or if they were moving forward, what their prospect of, of development looked like. And really what we found quite frankly was those folks, they recognized the value of what this area had for the recreational aspect to the local communities surrounding. From there, we took that to the cities of Rock Springs and Green River and both municipalities without any opposition approved a measure to support our proposal to the BLM. And then beyond that, we went to the county, Sweetwater County and to the commissioners and asked them for the same type. Now granted 12 years in the making, we have seen some changes to those city councils, to the county commission, because it's been a revolving door through elections of, of a change over a period of more than a decade. And each time there's been that change, we've gone right back to them saying, hey, here's what the previous administration was doing. Here's what the previous mayor and council was supporting. Wanted to make sure that we could really keep everybody walking at the same beat and to be in line on this. Uh, we've got very active members within the community, business owners, teachers, educators, uh, physicians, I mean, all across the board. And, th and that's been the most alarming part to this, particularly watching what's happened in Colorado and Montana is the wordsmith behind these efforts have always been gather local support. We wanna hear what's, what the local folks are saying and we wanna take that into great consideration. Well, I could tell you, seeing what we have seen with the, the Montana and the Colorado, the two releases that Aaron mentioned, it does not appear that that voice at the local level is carrying any weight. And knowing that, that's the frustration. I mean, we've spent and have exhausted some sweat equity to go to DC three different times to visit with our congressional delegation. Uh, we've been active participants at the governor's office. But the political bias to these efforts in this current time are clear that uh, the local voice, that just seems like it's a dog and pony show. And I don't know, I mean, I hate to, I hate to sound like Chicken Little, but when you see what you see Colorado and Montana's come out, it clearly seems like this 12 years of effort and work to try to have this voice be unified and to meet this request and our alternative proposal without any opposition, um, it's alarming to think what's coming. And, and I think, Aaron, you've seen and have heard in, in Colorado, of course, in your backyard in Montana, very similar efforts were put forth that, as you mentioned when we visited last week, in the 11th hour, there was an about face to how that information really did not garner the level of interest and support that you thought it had. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why we referred to it. I mean, in taking some of the language we've heard from others, but it truly is kind of energy dominance, meaning that that uh, use is dominating the conversation and dominating what the potential outcomes might look like. And that's like you said, Josh, we're not anti oil and gas either. We're really about balance. I mean, every time you, 
you get into any kind of conservation project, you collaborate. That's what we've been doing for a long time. And you figure out what all the parties want and everybody's got to give up something and everybody's got to lend a little bit. And, you know, we understand that not every place is going to be a totally awesome hunting area for us to just go and, and, and do nothing but that. We understand that. Um, but we just think this is, is taking it too far and we felt the need to uh, illuminate that for other people who don't really know what that might be, uh, what the effect of that might be on a landscape. So I think I would really echo most everything you've said there um, and, and knowing firsthand how special that place is. Uh, you know, I, I grew up in Riverton and my dad was a geologist and we spent a ton of time in the Red Desert and further down closing in and getting really close and spending a little time in that Rock Springs field office. And I've had some of the most amazing wildlife experiences in my life. Um, seen a big elk herd run across sand dunes, you know, in that Northwestern or that Northeastern section of the Rock Springs RMP area. That's just something you just don't see. You know, most people on earth have never seen anything like that. And, and so beyond just saying, here's the issues, also illuminating the incredible values there and, and what that means to me as, a, as an American, as a parent, as a, someone who grew up in Wyoming, all of those things are so special to me that I, I really feel the, the need to point these things out and tell this story. Yeah, you, you mentioned the sand dunes, Aaron, and uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, uh, I mean, it caught a lot of national notoriety a couple of years ago with a documentary that uh, National Geographic covered, but uh, the longest mule deer migration route that's been recorded on the North American continent uh, starts in that red desert area that you're talking about. Uh, it's often referred to as the red desert to Hoback. But, uh, literally these deer that were collared with satellite collars that they went back after trying to, to find them the following spring and weren't able to locate them. Uh, these deer are migrating twice a year, almost 225 miles from the red desert up to Island Park, Idaho and back transitioning from summer range back to winter range, making that trek. And when you look at that and you look at the obstacles and the challenges that they face and being able to make that type of movement, it's pretty significant. And really it's a testament that could really only allow for it to exist because of the landscape that we have. And when you start impeding that and you start looking at different ways that can shorten that, uh, I mean, it's clear right now, even I-80, uh, historically, you have to wonder where did those deer go prior to that? Because it's a barrier, it's an obstacle. And that's the, the southern end of where that migration ends now. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's it's really a national treasure. It really is. And you mentioned Aaron having uh, the memories as a kid and being able to share that with your own. Uh, that, that's one of the beautiful things about being God fearing Americans that we gotta love. <laughs> You got it. Is, is that is that migration? Um, is that part of what the oil and gas development, if it's allowed to be dominant over other uses, is that part of the harm that it would do then to the mule deer? Is that is that part of the impact that would interrupt some of those migration routes? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Development is the biggest threat to migration. Um, you start impeding that process, whether it's through fencing or roads or increased traffic or structures itself. It's those fragmentations within that habitat that pose the greatest risk to migration corridors. And, and granted, again, there's a lot of development uh, already and, and not saying that uh, we don't need more, but there is a lot of leases that are currently leased 
that have not been developed. And so when you just open up an RMP uh, for something that could be the playbook for the landscape for the next two decades with so much more potential than what's already there, it's, it's just alarming to think about what the, the potential consequences and collateral damage could be to the other recreational values that we hold dear that aren't at the same level of consideration. Yeah, I would add there, Drew, you know, one of the things we did when we were looking at this report is parse out, you know, by acreage, what habitat types uh, are allowing leasing and development. And, you know, there's about 180,000 acres in the mule deer migration path there that are that are allowed for leasing under the draft Rock Springs uh, Resource Management Plan. More than almost 1.5 million in the pronghorn crucial range. Uh, which crucial range is a definition that Wyoming Game and Fish has come up with that, you know, has a few different uh, data points that they use there. But there's some really critical habitat like those mule deer migration areas uh, that uh, are are really being leased and, and, and have the potential to be developed. Uh, in the Rock Springs area, there's only about 300,000 acres of the mule deer migration route. So if you're looking at 177,000 of them, um, you know, it's, it's definitely more than half. And, you know, th while there might be some stipulations in that area uh, that, that help reduce the impacts of development, we also think you have to leave some of them just completely alone in order to keep the integrity of that habitat. Josh, if, if people want to get involved in that process now, they hear this, they care about mule deer, they want, they want to help your cause, what can they do? What what action can they take, or how can they get involved with Muley Fanatic and and this RMP process, Rock Springs? Uh, you know, uh, specific to the RMP process, uh, you know, it, again, it's public land; it belongs to all Americans, and I think uh, you know you, you can certainly be aware by uh, it wouldn't take you hardly any effort at all to to research online. Uh, the Rock Springs field office for BLM and their RMP and be put on their list for notifications. Um, but the other way, you know, I mean, we are a nonprofit organization and uh, we want to be directly involved and tied to the efforts that we're doing and, and the action items that we're supporting and being engaged to, uh, you know, membership, uh, Mealy Fanatic membership. It's a $35 annual membership. Uh, comes with some nice swag, a, a ball cap, a decal, a membership card, but really it's, it's really about why you're a member and what you're supporting, that you're you're pledging your support for the efforts that we're putting forth and you want to see those continue. You know, COVID-19 has had an impact on us just like anybody else. The struggle is real. Our, uh, we have 16 chapters, as I alluded to earlier. Nine of those chapter banquets were canceled due to the, the social distancing mandates. So each one of those chapters has had to postpone or cancel their event altogether. Really spring in Wyoming is when those type of conservation banquets occur. You get into summer and you have uh, too many other competing factors and then fall, of course, you're not gonna draw anybody to, to be inside of a building for a conservation effort in the fall. Um, and so really we, we've kind of put ourselves in knowing we can't continue to operate the way we've been operating without that type of support from our membership is we're trying to adapt and overcome and knowing that the only way to do that is establishing a new identity in a new virtual world. And so, you know, we have a, have a state of the art website. We have a very, uh, you know, strong presence in, in the social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, uh, 
I'll Snapchat some of those. Uh, it's not really my forte, but we have someone here at the office that really likes doing that. And, and so I'm glad. I mean, that's a, that's a good combination and it complements us. But uh, the annual membership is really most important for us. Uh, it's a $35 membership. And that, that gives us a way to be able to maintain communications with you. Um, and, you know, we're quick to alert on any of these type of activities where we need support. It comes from their strength in numbers, just like any nonprofit conservation organization. That's the backbone of the growth of the organization and its stability. So, mutuallyfanatic.org, Drew. You know, and, and if, uh, if anybody that next time. <laughs> and if anybody, uh, if anybody heard our last episode uh, with Jared Frazier of 2% for Conservation, um, you heard him talk about um, how what you're facing with Muley Fanatic and the conservation banquets is, is widespread and going on. But if you're hearing this and you're saying, you know what, this is an important issue, yeah, definitely go to muleyfanatic.org and take some of those tips that Jared shared last episode and direct them to this cause and help support Muley Fanatic too. Yeah, I appreciate that, Drew. Thank you for that. Um, let's let's end on a positive note, though. Not not just uh, what we can do. Into the conversation. Yeah, not just what we can do or or, or how the muley uh, muleys are are doing or declining. But I want to know what what are your plans for hunting this fall? Uh, do you have do you have plans already uh, planned out for for your hunts, or what are you looking forward to? Yeah, so, you know, there, there's some there's some really prime areas in the Cowboy State for some great mule deer hunting that, uh, as a resident of Fortune, I'm fortunate that it's open to general hunting. And uh, so I have, I have never been the, the, the hunter that is just hoping and praying that I'm going to draw one of these special limited quota tags. Uh, I've, I've since uh, just decided that my efforts are better served to, to put my time into areas where I know I can access every fall uh, without having to be at the mercy of some sort of raffle lottery of if I can hunt. Um, and re so really what I look at is, uh, and I think all, all signs are there for another, last year was a great year. Um, we, we've had a, a pretty decent spring. We had a pretty average winter. We need some more moisture. Uh, of course, moisture is a big deal if uh, if you're looking for for chasing horn. Um, but I, I, you know, I've kind of reached also that stage in life where my youngest daughter is 19 and she just loves hunting. Uh, and it doesn't matter what it is, just to be able to have that time and spend it with her has really kind of become my priority. So I'll, I'll get my own special. I mean, elk meat is a staple at our house at the dinner table. Um, I, I would I would probably uh, never hear the end of it if I didn't come home with an elk. Uh, that just becomes the, the preferred flavor of protein at our dinner table. But uh, yeah, I, I still enjoy those early mornings looking for deer. It's the time of year that it is. And Wyoming provides some, some great opportunities to make great memories, whether there's a harvest at the end of the trip or not. Well, thank you. Thank you, Josh. And what we'll do is in the show notes to this episode, we'll put up links to muleyfanatic.org. We'll put up links to the National Wildlife Federation report on the resource management plans, as well as to the Rock Springs um, field office to make sure people can contact them um, and, and follow your lead on that as well. Um, I want to offer you both too. Um, anything that we miss, anything that that you want to want to get out there, and make sure people hear before we end this episode. 
You want to go or you want me to, Josh? I, I definitely have something to add, so go ahead. Uh, if you don't, well, it don't matter to me. <laughs> well, I'll go first and I'll be short. That way you can uh, tell us what, whatever you're thinking. Uh, I, I think one of the things this, this whole conversation highlights for me and I continue to go back to with conservation and, and I've been preaching and Drew's heard me say it uh, multiple times is, you know, we no longer have uh, the privilege without the obligation, uh, the, the ability to go hunt and, and have these amazing landscapes and this habitat and these critters out there. Uh, we we got to give back to that. It should just be part of our toolkit. Every one of us should, should be doing something like joining Muley fanatics, uh, joining national wildlife Federation, going out on a, a restoration project, you know, pulling old fence, uh, working with landowners. So, I would just leave us with, please get engaged somehow. We, we can't continue to, to move forward and leave these awesome treasures to our kids unless we go out there and do the hard work it takes to ensure they'll be there for them. Yeah, well, well said, Aaron. I, I don't want to follow that. <laughs> that, that. You're spot on. I mean, there's a reason why we're on the timeline in this time in history that we are, and really there, there's some great responsibilities that need to take place uh, while we're on the guard during this watch. So uh, the, the other thing I was gonna add was I, I've made quite a few references to this PhD project that we've partnered with the university on. And it is a very important project. It's not just an important project for this landscape. It's being able to get this information and then this application of this education and management tools that it can provide and how they overlap to other landscapes that benefit Mulder that are facing the same struggle that this particular landscape is offering. We sought this landscape out because it didn't have oil and gas development so that we could eat, we could right off of the, out of the gate factor in that that's not the culprit that's causing the decline of mule deer. There are many other factors out there. And so this is a very important project. What, what makes this project also so unique, and this is where I wanted to finish, is that that type of project, especially with the price tag that it came with, uh, for us to commission that is pretty unique in that we're a grassroots organization and we have funded this entire project almost through a series of raffles since we started this in 2015. We're about $189,000 short from fulfilling our $1.3 million obligation. And our latest raffle that we're doing right now is a pretty cool prize. It's a 2020 Jeep Gladiator that's all been tricked out. It's black and got a lift. You can see it on our website. We've got it here in the showroom. Uh, but we're drawing for that on July 18th. Last year, we did a really tricked out Toyota Tacoma with a rooftop tent and a deck system and all the goodies. And that, that's happened because we've been able to find good partners. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Fremont Motors, knowing what we do and the effort that we're putting forth. It's a large dealership that has a, a large audience across Wyoming. Uh, they've been a great partner for us on this. But uh, yeah, if you're going online on our website to look at possibly considering becoming a member, check out the raffle too on that. Look at that. Um, that that's a very valuable raffle for us to help uh, meet the financial obligation we have to the university. 
Thank you. And uh, looking at your website, that's right in the middle at the top menu bar, so you can't miss it. So no excuse not to not to check that out. Thank you both. Uh, Josh, thanks for taking the time to speak with the National Wildlife Federation. Aaron, thanks for jumping on as your first podcast as a co-host. You can hear Aaron's uh, previous uh, episodes as a guest in, in our history and on previous episodes. This has been the National Wildlife Federation Outdoors podcast supported by Rep Your Water and their 3% for conservation commitment.